Open up your Bibles to Genesis 26 as we continue our study through the Old Testament. Genesis 26, we'll begin reading in verse 17, and we'll read until verse 33, leaving just two verses. Uh, since we're doing backwards math for hymnals, I'll do the same thing. We're going to read up until the two verses till the end of the chapter. We're going to leave that to, uh, to start chapter 27 with. Genesis 26, starting in verse 17, it says, And Isaac departed thence and pitched his tent in the valley of Gerar and dwelt there. And Isaac digged again the wells of water which they had digged in the days of Abraham his father. For the Philistines had stopped <clears throat> had stopped them after the death of Abraham, and he called their names after the names by which his father had called them. And Isaac's servants digged in the valley and found there a well of springing water. And the herdmen of Gerar did strive with Isaac's herdmen, saying, The water is ours. And he called the name of the well Esek. And Esek means contention or uh, quarrel well, because they strove with him. And they digged another well and strove for that also. And he called the name of that one Sitna, which means strife or hatred well. And he removed from thence and digged another well. And for that they strove not. And he called, it, he called the name of it Rehoboth, which means wide places or streets. And he said, For now the Lord hath made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. And he went up from thence to Beersheba. And the Lord appeared unto him that same night, and said, I am the God of Abraham thy father. Fear not, for I am with thee, and will bless thee, and multiply thy seed for my servant Abraham's sake. And he builded an altar there, and called upon the name of, of the Lord, and pitched his tent there. And there Isaac's servants digged a well. Then Abimelech went to him from Gerar, and uh, Ahazath, one of his friends, and Phicol, the chief captain of his armies, which is likely a title as well. Again, a hundred years or so has passed. This is not very likely to be the same Abimelech and the same Phicol or Fickle. Um, they're just uh, likely to be titles. And Isaac said unto them, Wherefore come ye to me, saying, Ye hate me, and have sent me away from you? And they said, We saw certainly that the Lord was with thee, and we said, Let there be now an oath betwixt us, even betwixt us and thee, and let us make a covenant with thee, that thou wilt do us no hurt, as we have not touched thee. And as we have done unto thee nothing but good, and have sent thee away in peace. Thou art now the blessed of the Lord. And he made them a feast, and they did eat and drink. And they rose up at times in the morning, and swear one to another. And Isaac sent them away, and they departed from him in peace. And, he came to, and it came to pass the same day that Isaac's servants came, and told him concerning the well which they had digged, and said unto him, We have found water. And he called it Sheba, an oath. Therefore the name of the city is Beersheba unto this day. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you again for this text and for the study that we've been doing, Father. We pray now that uh, you'd enable us to remove the distractions and the burdens of this world from our hearts and minds, Father, that we be fed, uh, that our appetites be clean, Lord, that we would not bring anything to this table, anything to this study uh, that is not found in your word. We ask, Father, that you might bless us with understanding and application, Father, of what we read here this night. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. It's interesting to see that Isaac departed, as we see right there in the beginning of this text, in verse 17. Uh, he surely, as we left off in verse 16, he surely had the manpower 
If we'll go back and read verse 16, And Abimelech said unto Isaac, Go from us, for thou art much mightier than we. So we don't have Isaac's assessment of whether or not he had the manpower. We have the assessment of what may have been considered an enemy or a foe. We have Abimelech's assessment. You're mightier than we are. Uh, he says, Go from us. What Isaac says here is, Wherefore come ye to me, seeing ye hate me, and ye have sent me away from you. So it is interesting to see that he did leave. Uh, also based on Genesis 20, verse 15, which says, And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before thee. Dwell where it pleaseth thee. This was the previous Abimelech to the, the previous tribe leader, Abraham. The promise was that he could go wherever it pleaseth him. So not only was Isaac uh, likely greater in power, but he, he had authority. Abraham had the right to dwell anywhere in the land that he wanted. Also, these wells belonged to Abraham by the right of construction. Nevertheless, Isaac chose to leave the capital going east and farther up the valley of Gerar. So when you see that uh, he leaves one place but still ends up in Gerar, understand it's, it's not like Mantachi. This is a fairly big area. He left one part of it and went into another part. And in this situation, uh, he left the capital part and went towards the outlying lands. Just a couple of points to look at tonight. And as I said last Wednesday, this really continues the first study that we did on this. Uh, the first point will be that he dug again his father's wells. He trusted his father's God. And then uh, we'll wrap up with the Philistines once again feared God. We'll start here with he dug again his father's wells. These wells were not all necessarily filled in in spite of Abraham or Isaac. It wasn't just vengeance towards them. It's pretty likely those who were filling in these walls may not have even known about that situation. Uh, it's very likely the Philistine settlers that had moved into the area were not numerous. They weren't mighty uh, or prosperous enough to defend these wells, so they filled these wells until the time in which they would need them. Wells of water in the scripture speaks of divine resources of God for the spiritual life, and if you'll uh, don't, we don't do it all that often in this study, but if you'll turn over to the New Testament at John chapter 4, and we'll read those first 14 verses. Um, it's, an, it's an interesting opportunity we had last time to discuss uh, laying seed or agriculture, and now we see the opportunity to discuss springing wells or uh, ever-flowing wells or spring wells, however you want to call it. Uh, we don't want to pass these opportunities by in which we can really point to the Lord Jesus here in these scriptures. Genesis chapter 4, starting in verse 1, says, When therefore the Lord knew how the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself uh, baptized not but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again into Galilee. And he must needs go through Samaria. Then cometh he to a city of Samaria, which is called Sikar, near to the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph, which we haven't yet seen in Genesis, but it does happen there. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied with his journey, sat thus on the well, and it was about the sixth hour. There cometh a woman of Samaria. We made reference to her on Sunday. She came to draw water, and it was here in the, in the heat of the day. Jesus saith unto her, Give me to drink, for his disciples were gone away into the city to buy meat. Then saith the woman of Samaria unto him, How is it that thou, being a Jew, askest drink of me, which am a woman of Samaria? I know that we have studied this at greater length uh, in, in probably the last two years. It's probably closer to the time when I first got here. We need to understand that she, uh, 
for for her part in this, she's at the well at an unapproachable time in the heat of the day because of her own shame, because she wasn't permitted to approach this well with the other women of the city. So her own kinsmen, using the word on purpose, her own kids, kinsmen would have not been willing to go to the well with her, and that's why she had to go at the time of day that she did. This city, if we were to read further into the text and really dive into this, is not a city in which the Jews would tend to go. The Jews would consider them to be dogs, uh, mongrels, filthy, uh, a filthy mix in heritage. And Jesus would have been offended to be around her as a Jew is her expectation. And she says, For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Jesus answered and said unto her, If thou knewest the gift of God, and who it is that thou... Uh, that saith to thee, give me to drink, thou wouldest have asked of him, and he would have given thee living water, which is a reference to a well with, uh, which is linked to a spring, a well that continues to renew itself, a, a well in a sense that has uh, flowing waters within it, not just stagnant waters, but it continues to just be replenished by more and more water. And he said that he would have given her living water. The woman saith unto, her, uh, unto him, Sir, could you try again? Wants a message. She saith unto him, Sir, thou hast nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. From whence, then, hast thou that living water? Art thou greater than our father Jacob, which gave us the well, and drank thereof himself, and his children, and his cattle? Jesus answered and said unto her, Whosoever drinketh of this well shall thirst again. But whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give, thee, give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up unto everlasting life significant imagery again especially considering this this first appearance of seed sowing in the bible that we just talked about in the beginning half of this chapter so we see isaac's lineage that had started all these wells taking a hit if you'll allow me to say it in that manner because all these wells are being filled back in Abraham's claim to the land in a physical sense was that these wells were established. They were his wells, as we remember from the sevenfold oath when Beersheba first came up back in Genesis 20. But now they're all being filled in for one reason or another. But our claim isn't on wells in this land. Our claim isn't on money that's in our bank. Our claim is not on jobs that we have in this life. Our claim is not on reputations that we have in this life. Our claim, our hope, our salvation rests in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the well that he presents in John 4 that is the only well that matters. The Lord illustrates here with Isaac, who we already know to not be the most faithful of men so far, at least not the most spiritual of men, not most faithful, let me take that back, but not the most spiritually discerning of men, uh, and, and what we've already seen with his two boys. But what's being taught here is that these wells can be dug again. Uh, since the time of these wells that have been mentioned, I'm certain they've been filled in at least one more time. These wells are of very little importance, but the wells are dug for what reason? to get to those undercurrent streams, to get to that fresh living water that rests beneath. What is the purpose of our well digging? What is the purpose of anything that we do if it's not to find Christ Jesus or to bring Christ Jesus from the word into that situation? 
It's a wonderful illustration that we have here between uh, witnessing and finding Christ, witnessing and finding Christ, and um, just, a, just a wonderful thing that we can pull out of Genesis 26. But how true is this today that the spiritual wells at which our fathers drink are now being taken from us by the world, or at least they're trying to convince us that they've been taken from us. They will not thwart God, but they would delight in convincing us that there's no more water. They would delight in convincing us that we can be choked out with no hope of, of more, no hope of, of quenching our thirst, no hope of uh, relaxing our muscles, no hope of rest. Because you wouldn't rest if you were a traveler. You wouldn't rest where there was no water. You'd tend to keep on traveling. And in a sense, that's the reason for these filling into the wells in a spiritual sense is that we would just keep on moving. Don't stop here. Don't pack, uh, set up your tabernacles here, your altars here. We need to find ourselves this hour exceedingly thirsty and get back to the old wells. And if indeed the, the political announcements of today are true, and there is hope in the American politics that things will go back the other way, we most definitely need to consider these wells. While they can still be considered openly in our nation, I'm certain everyone in this room has heard for years, they're going to take our Bibles, they're going to take our guns, they're going to close our churches. And you know what? Whether they do or not, they've already won if they've convinced you that they will. They've already won if they've convinced you that at any point they're going to do that. The Lord Jesus said the gates of hell should not prevail against his church, but politicians say they're going to come take your Bibles. They're going to come shut down your churches. Do we have any means or reason to fear? Uh, we've experienced a, a, a wonderful period of 100 or so years in which our churches are all separate buildings from our homes and their luscious cushioned seats and carpeted floors, lights with air and heat, a baptismal that's heated, a piano to play. Well, we got churches that don't have piano players, but just about every one of them has one to two to three pianos in it. That's not always been the case for Christians. That's not always been the case for the saints of God. The wells in which I speak of that we should not forsake, the wells in which we need to make sure are dug back open once again, are wells such as prayer, wells such as the Bible. I'm sure you've all got one or two. And if not, I've got like a lot. I could give you one. But we're called to write this word on our hearts. Not just put them on shelves, not just save pews with them. We're called to write this word, dig these wells, and have it have an impression upon us. We're called to have godly conversations about this word. Ladies, not just the men. The elder ladies are supposed to lead the younger ladies. You're supposed to feed the younger ladies, encourage the younger ladies, model for the younger ladies. Not just send them to work. And we've talked about that recently. But to actually show them how. Men, we have that responsibility as well and the responsibility of leading our homes and modeling that leadership in the church, demonstrating the love that the Lord Jesus Christ had for the church as well in how we love our wives, how we lead and love our children, and so on. So well such as prayer, well such as Bible, well such as family devotion hours, well such as church worship hours. I don't know of a better time 
and I'll just hit this dead horse one more time, I don't know of a better time in which Christians have in which they can say, there's a lot of jobs out there. I will not work on Sundays and then go find another job. I know there's a lot of jobs out there, and I will not work on Wednesday nights because church is important to me, because that's when they hold their meetings, because that's when I get fed. I mean, how many have turned down overtime because they want to get home for supper? Because you want to get fed. How many have walked away from uh, promised money because they're simply tired? You've not seen tired yet until you've spiritually starved yourself, until you've not fed from the water that the Lord has to offer, from the meat of the word that God has laid out through his own blood, through the cross on Calvary. Keep starving yourselves out. There'll be a time in this nation where you won't have the option and the luxury to say that I will not do this job for sake of attending church services. Those days may still be upon us. And certainly the rapture's coming quickly. So we should consider these wells. We should mark these wells. We should mark when we have seen these wells for ourselves and for others. Isaac not only opened them again, but he called them by the same names that Abraham had used. I'm taking a little liberty on this one, but I kind of consider that to be the same as Baptist distinctives. We don't need to rename them. These are the same wells our forefathers have used. These are the same wells that they have pointed to. Let us redig them. Let us make sure folks know about them. What separates us? We haven't changed because we pursue after the Lord's church. We practice the Lord's church the way the Lord had demonstrated it. We baptize proper candidates in the proper mode. We do the Lord's Supper with the proper elements. We warn one another about the dangers of a little leaven. We preach the truth on church doctrine as such as church discipline, the importance of church membership, the importance of holy living. Other denominational institutions are just glad you came because they've got those credit card machines all over the place. They're going to get what they want. I don't want your money. I don't think this church would ever tell anybody they want your money. We want you to be saved. We want you to know of the only hope that you have, and that's if you have it, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And we want you to know everything that it is possible to know about him. We don't want to feed you a reasonable facsimile to water. We want you to have living water, everlasting water, throat-quenching, life-saving, and preserving water that comes from the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no substitute for that. So I'd like to consider the fact that Isaac reopens these same wells and calls them by the same names to be a type of Baptist distinctives. And I'm telling you, it's not gonna, I can't be dogmatic because this isn't something Paul lays out. This is something Joe lays out. And I think it would be good for us to consider it that way because Baptist distinctives are important. They're not just old things, old terms pastors dig up when they need something to preach. They're preached regularly and often because they're that important. They're absolutely crucial. Today you have a pastor that stands in the pulpit that does teach these things and a Sunday school teacher that does defend these things. But one day in Isaac's 16-year-old life, he may be the next one to help call the next pastor for Berea Baptist Church in Mantachie, Mississippi. 
Don't you want him to also find these Baptist distinctives to be crucial and absolutely important? Was that not the case with Chris? He gave me a survey of nearly 50 questions, and they were all Baptist distinctives. They were some I, I had heard of that I needed to go look up to make sure I was brushed up on it to my own shame. But if you didn't have a man like that here standing for these things, not a preacher or a pastor, a man of God and that he was called by God, he was saved by God, he was faithful in joining the church of God, then who knows what you would have ended up with in this pulpit. It's absolutely crucial, ladies, that you understand these Baptist distinctives. Who will teach this next generation? Who will see to it that they go home from church and those questions are answered? There's nothing more heartbreaking than to hear a child come up to you, and they're incredibly honest, and say, I had a question about what you preached last week, and my mom said, just go ask you. You know what comes to that? That's what the preacher believes. What do you believe? Your little ones want to know what you believe. They can hear me just fine. We had folks in temperance that when they left, they said, that's just what the preacher believes. That's not the truth. They had no evidence. They had nothing to back it up on. They had no apologetics, but they had hurt feelings. And hurt feelings kind of has a way of blocking out the truth. Hurt feelings has a way of going to Facebook and trying to find a way to defend it. Hurt feelings has a way of trying to find other people that might also be hurting and propping yourselves up upon them. You ever seen those cheerleaders do those pyramids? What happens eventually is they come down. They don't stay up very long. These foundational truths have stayed up quite a while. These foundational truths were established before the foundation of the world itself. We've got the doctrines of grace, the doctrines I've already mentioned of baptism and the Lord's Supper. All of these being Baptist distinctives. Head covering, the truth of marriage, not just that it's a man and a woman, but that it should happen once. The truth of how the Lord feels of divorce. These things are cautiously approached at best, but very few pulpits will preach them. Not only for sake of concern of alienating their own membership by feeding them, but alienating their own fellowship. Might not get called by so-and-so to preach for them if I preach on this. So be it. I'd rather not go preach for anybody else. This is where I was called to be. If they don't believe like, they, like we do, and they're not willing to consult the word of God when something conflicts their sentimentalities, then I ought not be there. You ought not be there. It's a dangerous thing to play around and see what the world has for you. Let us seek after true wells. We see it again in our text, verse 18, Isaac digged again the wells of water which they had digged in the days of Abraham his father, for the Philistines had stopped them after the death of Abraham, and he called their names after the names by which his father had called them. The world's going to call it all kinds of things. Hyber-Calvinists. Is the world right? The world called us Christians first. The world called us Anabaptists first do you know where these doctrines came from that we stand for did they come from calvin did they come from some other reformer it was recently in the past month or so reformers day or, or some some kind of madness uh, 
And many of our Baptist preacher brethren had to defend themselves and point out that we're not reformers. Did you know that? Did you know that we're not reformers? We had nothing to reform from. The only thing that we would have ever reformed from was our, uh, our backslidden sinful ways in which the Lord regenerated and saved us and called us unto him. But as far as religious practices go, you cannot reform from that which is pure. You cannot reform from that which is true. You can only reform to truth or away from truth, but this is the Lord's church. Do you adamantly believe that? Because you need to. If we have tougher times ahead than what we've experienced in the last three years, they're not going to call me to defend your faith. They're going to call you. And it's going to be people you know, maybe people you trust. This might happen every year, this time of year for you. Can you defend what you believe? Can you defend your stance? Can you point to Scripture? Can you prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that what you do is defendable by the Word of God? And if it's not, abstain from it. Abstain from it. The second point here is that he trusted his Father's God. We've really kind of seen this from the beginning of the chapter, but uh, this gives us a good opportunity to talk about it a little bit more. As long as he was away from Canaan, and we'll continue to see this, as long as he's away from Canaan, Isaac would have conflict. But when he went back to Beersheba, the well of the oath, God met him and gave him peace with the enemy. I mean, think about what led to that. Uh, in his own words, you all hated me and sent me away. They felt threatened by him because of the, the strength and the size of his tribe. But then as he was sent away, as he was sent right to where he needed to be, it does happen that way sometimes, Jonah. Then suddenly the Lord appears and speaks to him once again. The Lord gives him peace. The enemy literally comes and says, we don't want any trouble. This is the promise of Scripture, is it not? That the enemy would be, uh, that his enemies made a footstool. Sometimes we get to benefit from that. It's not always going to be that way for us to experience it, but it will always be that way for God to experience it. Your enemy is nothing to him. Your enemy has been defeated by him. You're going to have tough times. You're going to have tribulations, but he's overcome the world. He's overcome everything that could be manufactured by this world. Why is this? Why is it that every time he's away from Canaan, he has conflict, and when he goes back, he has blessings? Proverbs 16, 7 says, When a man's ways please the Lord, he maketh even his enemies to be at peace with him. It's God. This is why. It's God. Years ago, Abraham made a covenant with the Philistines at Beersheba, and we referenced this already. Uh, I think I said Genesis 20. It's Genesis 21. This is the well of the covenant or the well of the seven, uh, the sevenfold oath, and he built an altar there. And we can see this in Genesis 21, verses 32 through 34, where it says, Thus they made a covenant at Beersheba. Then Abimelech rose up and Phicol, the chief captain of the host, and they returned into the land of the Philistines, and Abraham planted a grove in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned in the Philistines, land many days it would have been here that Isaac also would have lived after the Mount Moriah experience and it is here now where God graciously met him once again 
Isn't God good? How is it referred to there in Genesis 21? This everlasting God, I believe. Yes, he called on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. The same God that was called upon in Genesis 21 so long before, 100 years or so before, is the same God that now communes with Isaac. This same everlasting, immutable God that does not change, does not stray, does not veer, has no need to reform, has no need to counter, has no need to retaliate, but loves repentance, loves when his people return. How far have you strayed from Beersheba, beloved? How far have I strayed from Beersheba? From a land of or a place of promise, a place of agreement, a place of peace, a place of watering, a good place with the Lord, a good place of fellowship. Listen, God's message here to Isaac was, I am the God of Abraham thy father. What great comfort that would be to Isaac. You know, my, my, both my grandfathers passed away when, when my Isaac was about two. And any time, and even Rebecca's grandfather, Jim, any time their names are mentioned, I smile. So imagine Isaac's place here. I mean, he's already talking to God. Well, let me redirect that. We don't really see where Isaac talks to God at all in Genesis 26, but he hears from God, which has to be a wonderful experience in itself. But when God presents himself as the God of his father, remember Genesis 22, Isaac wasn't a baby. Pretty likely he was a young man. He knows how good God is. He's seen it firsthand, bound over fire and beneath blade. He's seen the faith of his father. The Lord will present for himself a lamb. We shall return unto you. These things would be haunting somewhat in a good way. And here God speaks and says, I am the God of Abraham thy father. Fear not, for I am with thee and will bless thee and multiply thy seed for my servant Abraham's sake. How precious are these words? What did we just talk about on Sunday afternoon? The transfiguration. What is it that the Lord God the Father said from the cloud? As he spoke of his own beloved son. As he said, hear him. As the Lord said, fear not. As we've heard him countless times say, fear not, believe only. I don't believe the Lord Jesus wastes words. I don't believe God the Father wastes words. If he says, fear not, that means Isaac had some fear in him. That means there was something there to be addressed. There was perhaps sin at the door that needed to be removed or rebuked. Fear not. I'm with you. I will bless thee. And what he says after that, I will continue the promise I made with your father, with you. What a comfort. You know, who knows you best in the in the earthly sense as far as how sinful and wicked you really are you so hearing these words isaac knew how horrible of a person he was on the inside i know how horrible a person i am at times and perhaps his his idea of his father was elevated kind of like our idea of his father is at times and god says the same promise that i made and kept with your father i make and keep with you
What a reminder to Isaac that it's based on nothing that he does. That it's an election of God the Father himself. But what a confirmation of the goodness and absolute holiness of God. I'm keeping this promise with you. After all the strife and the turmoil concerning the wells, considering uh, the, the fear of Abimelech, considering having to continue to move and move and move, Isaac was told to trust in God for his supply. Romans 8.31 comes to mind. What shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? Think of Isaac's situation. This was daddy's well. I got to dig it up again. This was daddy's well. I got to dig it up again. I'm naming wells after strife and contention all across the land because everywhere I go, I'm met with strife and contention. And God says, you're in my stead. And scripture proclaims, then what can we say under these things? What is it that we have to say? That God has to respond, fear not. Just a whole bunch of fear mongering. Just like uh, I, uh, Elisha's servant, what shall we do? That's what we say to these things. Where can I go? Where will I be safe? What if they take our Bibles? What if they take our guns? They haven't invented a gun yet. And I've looked through the arsenal. That's going to take out God. That's going to be a threat unto him. I'm going to trust in him. I'm going to trust in him because he has promised perpetuity. He's promised to keep his people. He has promised everlasting life to all of his elect. I'm going to trust in him. Following this, we see Isaac build the only altar that we know of that he's built. He sets up a tent, which I don't remember too many references to him building a tent, except for perhaps after he first uh, marries Rebecca, and gave direction for his servants to start digging in. You know who Isaac's starting to sound like? Abraham. He's starting to sound like his daddy. This is how it should be for the saints of God. Not making new ways. Not creating new methods. Following the old paths. Clinging to those wells of the Baptist distinctives. You have received that promise in Romans 8.31 that God is for us who can be against us. Worship him for his mercy. Set up camp and dig in. Too often in this life, too often, way too often in this life, we, start, we try to stay mobile. I really think, if not for shame, we'd all live in RVs. That way, if it was just time to go, we could just go and leave no trace of ourselves. But here, here we can dig in. Here we can set up camp. Here we can trust in a well of multiple oaths at this point. Here we can trust in one that never changes. Here we can trust in one that is steadfast. Here we can trust in one that uh, if he is for us, none can be against, and it's only folly if they try. Here is where we can stand. Here is where we can reside. Here is where we can be fed. If you know the Lord Jesus Christ, you ought to be faithful. You ought to commit yourself unto him. You ought to set up camp and dig in. Let him tell you when to move. Let him tell you when to stay. He did all right by that giant nation of Israel that traveled across the land for so many years. 
The third thing, last thing, and briefest of all three points is the fact that the Philistines once again feared God. During the digging at Beersheba, a delegation of Philistines dropped by. The, uh, it was this period's Abimelech, this period's uh, Phicol, and another man that I have not yet found uh, reason to speak of, but uh, if I find reason, we'll make sure that we bring them back up again. Interestingly, as though they had just also read Romans 8.31, they suddenly seemed interested in peace with Isaac, which is kind of comical if you think about it. Uh, they didn't want peace before. Again, Isaac's way of phrasing it is that they hated him. But they said, get out, you're too strong, can't handle you. And again, it's as though they read that Romans 8.31 promise from God to Isaac and said, you know what, we need to go over there and make peace. Uh, we need to make sure he's a friend. Now we're in good standings with him. They reminded him that they had not harmed him or Rebecca. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that wonderful that they reminded Isaac that they didn't touch him or Rebecca? It could have had something to do with the fact that Abimelech threatened to kill anyone who, who did. But this is how the world <laughs> responds to, to the promises of God. Well, isn't it good we didn't sin worse? Isn't it good that we're no, we're no more worse than we are? Think of that prayer in the New Testament. Thank God I'm not like that publican. Thank God I'm better than him. If you are, it'd be God, not you. But listen, beloved, th this is not something to boast of. What if I came to your home and said, just be glad I didn't preach at you. Be glad I didn't kill you or your wife. I'm pretty great. I've never killed anybody in here. Or anybody's wives. This is essentially what they do. They go to Isaac, who just communed with God, and they said, just remember how good we are and how good we've been to you. We let you redig all those wells your dad had already done. And we didn't bring harm to your home. Isaac agrees to be peaceful. He held a feast. He sealed the covenant in the morning with an oath. And following these events, we see... Uh, fruit of God once more. Following these events, the servants announced that they had struck water and the promises of God as well as the well of Beersheba were renewed and confirmed. Isn't that wonderful? Somehow Isaac stays calm when one who had recently threatened him comes into camp. Well, well we start this portion of Genesis 26 that this person told him to leave uh, and seemingly in a hateful way. And then we get to the end of it and... We've seen all the wells he's had to redig, and we see all the promises that, that none of them have ever made, but somehow they're, they're reaping the benefits of never crossing those promises. And Isaac remains calm, remains focused on God, because what can you say when God is for you? Who can be against? And as a result, and, and I kept reading over this thing wondering just how far Abimelech and Phicol and what's-his-name got before the servant said, We struck water! And I just wonder if they heard it, how bitter they might have been. Or how thankful they might have been that we made an oath with this guy, a covenant with this guy, because God's with him too, just like he was with Abraham, just like he was with his daddy. We'll have our hands full if we cross this guy. Now, I'm not telling you your reputation with the world should be that they're going to have their hands full if they cross you. But I want to assure you that if they cross God and do not repent, they will have more than their hands can handle with him. What a what a promise honoring God we serve. And I pray that you do indeed serve this mighty one. If you have questions on him, don't leave here tonight before you've had him answered.